FBI Special Agent Jerry Clark talks about what it took to get the search warrant to go into Brian Finch's house after he died from the explosion. It's a major case now. Um, what was your thought process about whether you go in uh, under exigent circumstances or wait to get the warrant? We thought about the exigent circumstances, but we decided that if there was information in there related to his involvement in the case, we didn't want it to get tossed because we didn't have the paper. So we wanted to do it the right way, collect ourselves. Plus, the other thing was we wanted to hit that house with SWAT and with uh, certified bomb techs and people on scene. It took till 1.30 in the morning. This went off at 3.18. Uh, I think we wrote a 30-page affidavit to get in the place. Uh, myself and the prosecutor, the United States attorney, U.S. attorney assistant, Marshall Pitchin, and he wrote it. And it took till 1.37 to saddle up, brief, get the agents and, and uh, uh, officers ready to go hit this place. They breached the door. Welcome to Game of Crimes. What are your what are your first reactions after this goes off? Like, see, so you see the trooper fall back, you feel the percussion. I mean, there's that initial like you can't believe what you just saw, right? And just what you heard is like, I mean, the first thought is like, oh shit, it really was a bomb. Yeah, that's the first thing you're thinking. That number one, I can't just believe what 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 just happened. And then the second thing is because we're all cops, we're very nosy and intuitive. We want to run up and see. So the two troopers started running up and then everybody's yelling, you know, secondary, secondary Get back. That's right. Yeah. Because they thought, Hey, if this is rigged to have, you know, first, you know, responders killed. Mm-hmm. So we were smart enough at the time and composed ourselves enough to pull back and then just wait now because the bomb squad had literally just gotten suited up and they were ready to now make an advance. And so, we actually had a bomb tech in, you know, the suit actually make advance up to the body to render it uh, what we thought to be safe. You know, and it's interesting talking to bomb techs, too, because they have a different view of the world. I talked to a guy one time and he said, I said, how do you do that? He says, look, it's very simple. Either I'm right or it's no longer my problem. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. not a good way to look at it. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, but uh, that's what I'm saying. But that's, that's kind of their mindset for some of that. The other one too, is the practical joke. You see an EOD guy standing there and somebody comes up behind him with a paper bag, you know, pop, boom, yeah. you don't want to do those things. No. But, um, so now, you, I mean, you've already waited, right? Because you want to get into the investigation. Now you've got the explosion, which now is obviously going to complicate it in your mind at that time. Did you, I mean, I know it's hard to look out into the future and say, but when you were sitting there, did you get this feeling going, oh, dude, this is going to be a career case, you know, or uh, did you have any inkling at that point about how bad and how complicated this was going to get? I had no idea what I got myself into. Uh, Bob Rudge was the supervisor of the Erie office at the time. He later became the ASAC a couple months later and got transferred to Pittsburgh and um, and then I became the acting uh, resident agent in charge. But anyways, uh, long and short was I looked at Bob and I said, Bob, you know, I, I, you know, obviously I'll take this case. This is my case. And he said, yeah, no, this, you know, this is yours. 
at that time, I had no idea what I just signed up for. <laughs> be I careful what no you asked for, right? <laughs> yeah, be careful what you asked for. I asked for it, I got it. and But I wasn't thinking of it as all the things that would come out of it, you know, related to movies and all that. You're just thinking, thinking, what's the next thing I got to do, right? That's exactly it. I'm thinking, you know, how do we know what just happened? We got to have somebody at the pizza shop. We got to figure out what he was doing, what time he left. We got to do a neighborhood canvas. We got to make sure the scene is safe. You know, all the things that you do on a preliminary investigation all just sort of kicked in. So let's kind of put a pin there for just a second. Let's go back. Let's talk about what he did. So did did he ever get into, did Brian Wells ever, you know, let's, some people may not have seen the movie or read the book. So did he actually get into the bank? Was there any money gone? How did he get up to being sitting in the middle of the street? So, yeah, here's what happens. He uh, he gets a call at 1.30 uh, ordering two pizzas to be delivered to what we know now to be a tower site location. On Peach Street, again, all this, this whole thing takes place on the same road, you know, north and south, in, in, but basically the same thing. Uh, so 8631 Peach is the place he's to deliver these two pizzas. He goes, he delivers the pizzas. He then gets this device. He, he meets people there. They put a device around his neck. He actually drives to the bank goes into the bank physically, parks his car in the parking lot, goes into the bank, goes in, and there's customers in the bank, and he stands online. Now, a bank robber standing online is a psychological gem for me, right? Because most bank robbers aren't going to stand online. They're going to go right to the counter and rob the bank, right? Mm -hmm. So he realizes, hey, after a little bit of time standing there you know i need to talk to somebody so he just yells to another teller hey i'm robbing the bank here's a note so he hands her this this stack of notes i've never in my life in all the bank robberies i've done had seen nine total pages of bank robbery <laughs> notes in this case it's like an oh, instruction yeah. manual <laughs> it was a manual i've never there were notes to the manager of the bank there were notes to brian wells on what he was to do as the hostage there were notes to the police and what we were supposed to do there were notes of maps on a scavenger hunt that was his destiny to follow so his job was to go into the bank rob the bank ask for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is a huge ask in a bank robbery, unless you're getting in the vault, the bank manager was at lunch. And this is sort of comical. And again, I, I don't make light of this because it's a serious case and someone died and three people died, actually. Right. But this was just, I, he said to her, hey, I need 250000 And she said, well, the manager's on lunch. You're going to have to come back. And he says, well, I'm robbing the bank, you know, so I can't come back. So... They give him teller drawer money, which is like eight thousand two hundred and seven bucks out of the two hundred and fifty that he wanted. They gave it to him in a canvas. He put it in a canvas bag, and he's got this cane in his right hand. Now, here's the another difference 
between some of my other bank robberies. There were people in the bank, customers, who called 911 while he's literally in the bank. So you almost never have that. Says, hey, I'm watching this guy. I think he's robbing the bank. He's got a device around his neck. And now he's leaving the bank. And now he's getting in his car. And hey, he just pulled his car to the McDonald's and he got out. It's like Monday Night Football play-by-play. I swear to God, if you listen, I have the 911 call. It's so fascinating. So it was literally state police. The response was incredible. They were there in minutes. Uh, Brian Wells got into his car carrying this cane, which we can talk about in a second. The bag of money. By the way, he's described by the witness when I interviewed him as very Charlie Chaplin-esque. He was swinging the cane and the bag of money like he didn't have a care in the world. And again, the psychology of what goes on in this is fascinating because also while he's in the bank and he's talking to the manager, he reaches in the teller counter basket and pulls out a lollipop and is sucking on the lollipop while he's in the bank. So either this is the most calm, cool, collected bank robber you ever met, or this guy, I mean, but, but, but to your point, you start thinking about what does it start telling you psychologically? You think about people go in and rob banks, even people who go in and rob banks that they're armed with guns, they're still, some of those guys are sweating bullets. They're like, you know, they're, they're getting demanding. Hey, we had, um, Rick Massa, LAPD SWAT. He was the one that was involved in the North Hollywood bank shootout. Oh, wow. With Montesorano Phillips and Montesorano. And I mean, these wow. now, as much as those guys were cold and calculated, it was still, they started, you could tell when they started getting frustrated, they started getting anxious, you know, things weren't going their way, even with the, the SWAT guys. So at some point you start going, when does, when does for you during this time, when does it trigger with you to go, does this guy, is this guy in on it or is this guy a dupe? Yeah. And you know, what's crazy about that, Morgan? That question, I still get to this day, 19 years later. And there's no question in my mind at the time, I'm thinking things aren't adding up. Something's not right here. He's calm sitting there. He's talking to the troopers. I I didn't know at the time how calm he was in the bank because I didn't get that information till later. But all the time I'm seeing him, I'm not seeing that panic. But when I start to go into the investigative side and I'm looking at the lollipop, the cavalier attitude, the now the pieces that I see personally when I'm watching them, it just did not fit somebody that knew that that device was real. Nobody in their right mind. Because here's the thought that comes to mind. If you, and I asked this question later to one of the subjects, when we get into me starting to interview and interrogate some of the subjects, it's sort of incredible what what one of the guys tells me but i ended up saying what is he thinking because he's so calm you know he's got zero fear uh and 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 that just didn't sit right with me so we start doing the canvas right we're going to talk to people in the bank we're going to talk to businesses we're going to collect video we only had stills from the inside of the bank but i didn't have a video so I definitely had pictures of him with the cane and with the money, with the lollipop in his mouth, with dirt on his knees, which we know later to be important to us in the investigation. So that one picture and that still gave us a ton of information 
that we piece together with other evidence that we recovered in the case. So what is the call like when you call back to your office and say, yeah, it really was a bomb? I mean, because it's just now yeah. like, kind of like an all hands on deck. You, you need a lot of help, right? We're calling Pittsburgh. We're calling uh, ATF because we have a bombing. You know, they're in route. We got uh, bomb squad people there. We've got, uh, you know, Quantico now involved. I mean, this went high order very quickly because when you think about it, you know, in Colombia, and you guys certainly, you know, Steve, you can speak to, you know, the Colombian necktie and all the things that we didn't know if this was an international event, you know, where we might have another one of these in a week, another day, another hour, uh, if, if it was going to, you know, happen in another city. So that's why this got elevated almost immediately to a major case status in the FBI. Now, major case status is a big deal because you talked about Tim McVeigh, major case 117. Oak major bomb. Case, Oak bomb, exactly. Major case 130, Eric Rudolph. Major case 184, Pent Bomb, which is the Twin Towers. And this got major case 203. I mean, on Peach Street in Erie, I mean, everybody's going, you're kidding me. How did this get elevated to that level? And Jerry, let me ask you that. Do you think it was because we are you are still so close to 9-11 that, I mean, because I remember when something happened, remember there was a TWA flight or something that went down, I think, in New Jersey, and the first thought was, it's terrorism. It's before, you know, they, they would uh, they would ask you, you know, when if a plane crashed on 9-10, they go, oh, that's, you know, that's bad, obviously. And on, but on 9-12, it's like, is it terrorism? Everything was always, is it terrorism related? That Did that come up early in this investigation? No doubt. And they were fully connected. Anything still in 2003 could have been terrorism related. So they immediately thought, all right, let's elevate this thing. Let's give it full resources of the FBI. They were sending us printers and copiers. And, you know, the URA had all this equipment sent in that stuff that we never, you know, uh, had had the advantage of. But I'm telling you, every resource went into this case. Man, so so let, let's talk about that. So. Um, Somebody has to go up and obviously make a quick assessment that uh, he's dead. That's done, right? Um, you've got to secure the scene, and now you're going back in and start. So t walk us through now the investigation. Does this thing starts unfolding? I mean, it, it, so that people know, and I've never been involved in a case like that. I mean, but you've been involved in homicides or other stuff. You show up on a scene. It's a lot of chaos at first, and then there you start getting some order to it. And then pretty soon you start getting into a rhythm. How long did it take for the initial chaos to settle to where you started getting some semblance of order and then getting into an investigative rhythm? Boy, I cannot explain to you how you picked up on that. It, it was it was a long time. We had CNN with the dishes out there. We had, you know, all the major channels, NBCC. I mean, it was a big deal. And so initially we had agents. Uh, coming from all over. We'd hold briefings, two-a-day briefings, eight in the morning, four in the afternoon. I'd lead both briefings. We'd send out leads. We got a 1-800 number. We got a $100,000 reward. I was doing urgent reports. And the FBI, anybody who's listening that's an FBI uh, agent, they're going to know what an urgent report is. You're sending a report that gets to the director. So Director Mueller at the time was reading and wanted to know every day what was going on with this case. And did and, you watch the borders on those reports? 
I had I was going outside <laughs> of the borders. I was making smiley faces. No, I'll tell you, those had to be done. And so I became like an administrative agent instead of my real passion, which was the interview interrogation guy. So I was running this thing, writing the affidavits for search warrants, because the first thing you're going to do is a search warrant in Brian Wells's house, right? Because we want to see or where he lived. He lived in this little cottage behind somebody else's house that he rented. And uh, you'll see on a picture I have, by the way, if you ever get to see this presentation I do, uh, and I'm talking to your fans, not to you two, but. Uh, oh, so we're not invited. Okay, well, fine. No, fine, Jerry. The podcast be, is over. Podcast be, is over. I might be boring you two, but if you're a fan of true crime and you get to see. Yeah. Uh, I do a presentation that has the PowerPoint pictures of everything that I talk about. So you'll see interiors of houses and you see witnesses and you see people. And Let me ask you something, Jerry. How long does your yeah. presentation take? I can do it in an hour, but then I'm flying, but it normally takes to law enforcement about three hours. You and, know, I have an yeah. idea. We'll, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it offline. I got a, I got yeah. a guy. I know. So I have an idea where we All can right. bring it to the masses, but in a way that fairly takes care of you for what you're doing. But let me ask you a question though, kind of going back. Cause you said you're writing a search warrant for the house. Yeah. Was there a discussion about the fact is that because he had an explosive device around his neck that there were exigent circumstances where you needed to go in and make a preemptive search of the house to make sure everything was safe? Or did you guys just say, no, look, we need to get the search warrant and go in there because it's a major case now. Um, what was your thought process about whether you go in uh, under exigent circumstances or wait to get the warrant? We thought about the exigent circumstances, but we decided that if there was information in there related to his involvement in the case, we didn't want it to get tossed because we didn't have the paper. So we wanted to do it the right way, collect ourselves. Plus, the other thing was we wanted to hit that house with SWAT and with uh, certified bomb techs and people on scene. It took till 1.30 in the morning. This went off at 3.18. Uh, I think we wrote a 30-page affidavit to get into place. Uh, myself and the prosecutor, the United States attorney, U.S. attorney assistant, Marshall Pitchin, and he wrote it. And it took till 1.37 to saddle up, brief, get the agents and, and uh, uh, officers ready to go hit this place. They breached the door. Well, hey, Jerry, hold on before you get into that. I'm, yeah. I'm more confused about why did it require a 30-page affidavit? I mean, I know when lawyers get involved, the old joke is only a lawyer can write a 100-page document and call it a brief. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Another one. But but no. why did you go to such extent with 30 pages? It would almost seem like, hey, we showed up. This guy had a thing around his neck. This is where he lives. You know, we have reason to believe that there's some evidence there. I mean, it seemed to me like that's more like a two page thing. Why 30? You know, the, in the in the in in the federal side of things, they get really strange about, you know, descriptions and uh, attachment A. So we had several pages of what we were looking for in the attachment A. So, you know, bomb making materials, bomb, you know, all the things that could have been made in the device. I mean, it went on for pages. And then just listing our probable cause as to the information that we received. I don't know if somehow it ended up being well, no, a I get that. Book. I mean, the probable cause might be two to three pages because you got to lay it out. And then the attachment, what you're looking for to substantiate why you get the warrant could be, you know, those extra pages. I thought you meant you had like 30 pages of narrative and I'm going, no, oh no. my God. <laughs> no, no. We just had all this combination of 
Okay, that makes that more sense. Needed, that we were trying to say, just in case, because if this guy has notes in there that he's involved and that he has he made the device with somebody, now we can collect that evidence and don't you know, you know the other case I'm thinking of that this not has eerie similarities to, not to uh, coin a phrase, get it eerie similarities. Is the Unibomb case, Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. You start no. thinking, you know, is this is this guy making his own bombs, you know, stuff like that? Absolutely. That was another just fascinating case uh, that, that I read a lot about after this one, actually. But this 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 because my interest in bombs, I had zero knowledge of IEDs. You know, I had never had uh, any involvement with that. And so I had to brush up on a lot of things once I got involved as as the investigator, because I'd be testifying and I'd have to learn a lot of things of uh, amazing uh, work that they do that I had no idea. Um, so we do the search warrant. We find very little in his house. We basically find one thing that turned out to be really important, and that was a spiral notebook with a list of every name of every person he knew, and it only filled one page. Jeez. And in that book, he had his sisters and his brothers and his mom's name and his where he got his uh, movies from and then there were two names jessica and angie and they had their names so of course we're going to do a subscriber check we're going to figure out who those belong to we then find out their names we find out a criminal history both were known prostitutes in the city of erie and you're starting to think wow all right, so the guy frequents prostitutes. What's the deal? What's going on here? So we try to go interview them, and that's when this whole case just starts. It it just starts enveloping. It really it it went from there. Well, let's talk about that because, um, like you say, having that local knowledge is key. Knowing who who the girls are, you know what they might be involved in. But this is it. Like you say, this is one o'clock the next morning on August twenty ninth. So. Uh, at what point do you get something substantial? Is that, do these interviews take place the next day then? I mean, so kind of walk us through it because I know um, we're going to talk about Robert Panetti here in just a little bit. So kind of walk us through what those first 48 hours look like because anybody who watches TV and TV is always true, right, Steve? You know, Narcos. Oh, is, we were just, yeah. oh, real quick. <laughs> we're just talking about that before he came on air, Steve. Tell him about the email you got this morning speaking oh. about how people, how much people get TV wrong. Yeah, I, get, I wake up to an email from a person who included a name. I don't know if it's legit or not, but criticizing us because of our participation in the Pablo Escobar investigation and that we were complicit in as many murders, if not more, with than Pablo Escobar. And uh, their entire argument is based on watching the narco series. They're, they're talking about how Javier was passing classified information to Los Pepes, about how I was present when Colonel Carrillo killed a child and I did nothing about it. There is no Colonel Carrillo. That's a fiction. That's a fictional person. It was created for the series. It's like, moron, do a little more research than this, you know? Good grief. Uh, Steve, to this day, I still, I'm still, i sure you get it 10 times more than me, but I still get people saying, you know, Brian was innocent or Brian was guilty or, you know, did you check this? Did you do that? To this day, 19 years later, I'm still getting them. 
There's a lot of wannabes out there, aren't there? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a oh, lot yeah. of COVID experts, and now there's a lot of Article 5 NATO experts. You know, they transition from <laughs> – I saw somebody on LinkedIn said, I'm glad – pleased to announce I've accepted a new position as a NATO Article 5, uh, you know, expert on the, you know, Russia-Ukraine war. So you, you, the reason I'm saying that, you get a lot of people, but what it really boils down to is what I was getting to the first 48. You watch TV a lot of times, especially on homicides and stuff like that. Or bank robberies, you know, it's that first 48 hours, is, it's really vital to get information because things are fresh, things are being discovered. What happens in the first 48 hours for you guys? So we're putting together all the information we've developed through the canvases, through the uh, discussion with witnesses, through the talking of the bank victim teller and the bank employees. And then we're also getting information now on the people that we now learned about in the search warrant. So those first 48 then the pizza shop. So we're very interested in where Brian Wells worked, what he was doing uh, at the time of his work, uh, his connectivity. We're doing a background check on him. We're talking to his family members. We're learning as much as we can about everything that we know. I always talk about that now when I talk investigation in class here at Gannon University. I'll say, you can only start with what you know. And what you know then you can build on what you don't know. But uh, everything that you know, you've got to put in place. We started getting tips immediately on our tip line. So that was running hot. We had those two-a-day briefings going on uh, where we'd send people out on leads. They then would come back. God forbid you miss a lead as a law enforcement officer, right? So somebody calls in, you don't go do it, and then something else happens or you... I mean, so we, we use what's called rapid start in the FBI, and it's a lead generating system where you get a number assigned to the lead, and that lead has to have a disposition. And so somebody has to go out, do whatever it had in the lead, you know, oh, I saw a guy running from the bank. All right. And by the way, it was chaos up there because they blocked both ends of Beach Street, the main road, and there's a big, big mall up there called Mill Creek Mall. And the mall had people that were trying to get to work. And so they were jumping out of their cars and running and leaving a bus and trying to run there. So now they're saying, hey, we saw a guy running on Peach Street and it looked like he could have been involved. And so now we're drawing composites of people that were actually just running to work and not involved in it. So there was tons of things. Uh, you know, those 1-800 tip lines, they're double-edged oh, yeah. swords, right? Oh, yeah. They work because they're generating leads, but then... Hey, it sounds like my brother-in-law. Well, what's your brother-in-law? Is he living here? No, he's in California, but... Uh, he could have done him. this. He could have yeah. time-traveled and come out to... Yeah. I've never liked him. Oh, hey, well, <laughs> Jerry, let me ask you about that. Uh, just on average, with all the tips you got, how many ended up... How many tips did you get? How many... What was the ratio? Like, for every 10 garbage ones, we got one good one. Did you have a ratio? No, we never really figured out. We, we had thousands that just never went to anywhere. You know, I had engineers calling saying, hey, I saw that caller and it looks like uh, a device that we made to put around telephone poles to hold wires. And, you know, everybody was calling. And, and, and we like that, right? The FBI and, and law enforcement, hey, call us. We'll figure out if it's not true or not. But it, some of the stuff just was not It's, not it's one thing to get a thousand tips. It's another thing to get a hundred thousand tips and have to sort oh, through yeah. all of that stuff. That's exactly it. Because if you don't vet one and it turned out to be one, yep. oh my God, you're and now so, the news. Hey, and yeah. actually, you know, there was an interest, and I'm trying, I can't think of the case, but because I've, I'd work with the Bureau on some other stuff, but rapid start. But the one thing I love, especially when you're trying to shake things up, you talk about like tip numbers. 
they were trying to shake up uh, what they had a conspiracy, I think, on a murder and bank robbery or whatever. But one of the FBI agents went there. The guy wasn't home, but they knew that. They said, call me about tip 143. Well, they were up on a Title III, an electronic intercept. And what did the guy do? He got on and called one of his co-conspirators and said, hey, the FBI wants to talk to me about tip 143. What should I do? And that's how they found the other guys involved in this. But to your point is that you got to run. In fact, it was uh, after the Ted Bundy murders, uh, the Gainesville police and the University of Florida down there created a lead system very similar to that, where you could bring leads in, track them, assign a lead to it. it basically, a, 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 a local version of Rapid Start. But okay. people don't realize, I mean, it's like you get all that data in there. That's why you've got the Bureau when they show up. The great thing about the Bureau, they bring a ton of resources, you know. Mm-hmm whether it's for your own investigation or one of my friends is the chief of police in Colleyville where the uh, Texas, where they just had the synagogue shooting down there, the guy that they had to shoot oh. that yeah. but the, the bureau brings in HRT. They bring in resources. Look, when they, when they saddle up, you can bring in a lot of stuff. And obviously yeah. you guys are getting the tips here. So this first 48, you're doing these briefings. How do you get to uh, Robert Panetti? Yeah. Robert Panetti becomes very interesting. And also one real important thing I forgot in the first 48, where it's the collection of the evidence. And I'll, I'll tell you what an amazing job our ERT and, and 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 the local and state police and ATF did with collecting these bomb fragments. They were everywhere. And I'm not kidding you. Uh, we had to set up zones, A, B, C, D, E, F. And you have to say who found it, what zone, what time, who witnessed it. You know, every piece, you know, a, a little scrap. And, and you're collecting it all and putting it all together. And I got to say... That first 48 was getting that all collected, flying a plane. You know, the FBI brought up a plane, flew all the evidence to Quantico, opened up the uh, Quantico, by the way, just opened our lab down there. The one that we have there now, which is Battlestar Galactica, they call it. It's the, you know, premier lab, crime lab, opened it up put a long table out with with brown paper and laid out all the pieces like a, a big puzzle. And what they did assembling that thing will stay in my mind is one of the unbelievable accomplishments of law enforcement, how they put that device back together. So anyways, those were all 48 hours of stuff. Well, then Robert Panetti is an interesting character because he was the other pizza delivery driver that worked at Mama Mia's. And he's the guy that I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that we said, and not me, but one of the agents said, Hey, we need to talk to you about Brian Wells. And he said, Hey, I'm on a shift. I'll figure it out. You know, I'll finish it. I'll get with you on uh, Monday. And for Robert Panetti, Monday never came because he had an overdose on Sunday night and died on the floor in the bathroom of his mother's house. So that's one of those things. Now you're thinking two dead pizza delivery drivers from the same pizza delivery shop and there were only two and they're both dead in you know two days so did you guys think that was a suicide or you think it was suspicious i thought it was suspicious and when we later found out and during the interviews he was looking for a gun and was very nervous when he saw that brian had died Mm -hmm. and he went to his sister and said i need your gun and and there, so we interviewed all these people that said he was highly interested in uh, protecting himself. And we're starting to think, well, what's he protecting himself from unless he had some knowledge of this thing, which 
you know, unfortunately, we'll find out later he did. Right. That, yeah, so this is kind of like getting complicated, convoluted, complex. I mean, all the C's that anything that you could imagine, this thing is happening. I mean, did you, how much sleep did you get during the first 72 hours? It was, and I, and I talk about this later. I don't know that, I mean, I would be able to go home, but I worked, I think, 90 straight days where three months I just had Saturdays, Sundays, every day for three months. And there were times when I was slipping home, changing clothes, you know, getting a meal or whatever. But I just, you're totally immersed, mm-hmm. as, as, especially as the lead investigator. I mean, I had Washington, you know, I had people asking for urgent reports. I had different people rotating, helping me write urgent reports uh, from Pittsburgh. All the supervisors were coming, taking turns writing with me. And it was it was challenging. It was a very, very difficult time. Um, and again, I'm looking back on I made out easy compared to Mr. Wells, obviously, because he got uh, murdered out of it. But uh, it did change me in a lot of ways uh, and all the people that touched it. If you're that deep in a case, not to mention what it does to your family life, because it's just horrendous. Oh, Steve, my wife's a psychologist, which I don't know, helped me or hurt me. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably wondering why she married you. huh? (laughs) She's first going, whoa. And you never want to know so much about yourself that you'll find out if you marry a psychologist. But I'm going, do I really? Am I like that? Her favorite uh, question to you is, how does that make you feel, Jerry? How does that make you feel? (laughs) And so I don't know if I could have got through my marriage really right. without her support and love through it. And, but it, it challenged us to the end. And um, Jason Wick, who's the ATF agent that we'll talk about, who came up from Pittsburgh and was sort of their lead investigator for ATF, became an integral part of working this case with me. And we've become like brothers out of this case. Uh, he actually got divorced during the case. So, I mean, that, to your point, Steve, what what your family goes through, and my kids were young, you know, three and seven, you know, and I basically saddled my wife with that, and and I was gone. And when I was there, you know, I wasn't there. So it was, it just was, it was a challenge. Absolutely. It takes a very special lady or a a man, you know, married to a, a female officer, to put up with yes. all the crap we do and, and give yes. us that leeway to do our job because they realize how important it is. Oh my goodness. They're the heroes. And ne- next tell was out, you know, and you're beep, 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 beep. Oh. My phone was just going all day, all long, all yeah. night, every, every day. Yeah. But so like I said, you've got all this chaos going, but you've also got, you've got to maintain the speed of the investigation, right? Cause you, you got, obviously you're being overcome by events. There's a lot of things going up. So I know we start getting into, you're starting to develop leads. So What's one of the next major breaks in the case? Because what I don't want to do is take away too much from the mystery of people need to come hear your presentation. But um, but yeah. I want to, you know, but there's you have obviously big things that are happening doing it, like the lead, um, searching the apartment, um, the Rothsteins, you know, and stuff. So, so how do you get so to that, those? That's exactly where we go next, Morgan. Uh, three weeks later. So if this isn't crazy enough, right, we have two dead pizza delivery drivers. then. August, so that happens August 28th. Then August 30th, Panetti dies. So that's two days later. Then September 21st, 
Three weeks later, we get a call, 911, Bill Rothstein on the line. Hey, it's Bill Rothstein. I'm driving around in my van. I'm going to kill myself. But I need to tell you, in the freezer in my garage is a dead body. <laughs> and the 911 operator is going, wait, wait, start from the beginning on that. You know, I got a dead body in the freezer. Marjorie Deal Armstrong shot him. It's her boyfriend. And I'm going to kill myself. And they said, no, come to the police, state police. And they talk him into showing up at the Pennsylvania State Police, which he does August on September 21st, three weeks later. So I immediately, you know, go to the house. They're going to do a search warrant at the house. And I'll never forget this because it's a Sunday. And I'm thinking, is there really going to be a dead body in this in this freezer? Yeah, that's and something you don't hear every day. You don't hear that that often. <laughs> Open the freezer and, you know, it was so frozen in plastic, but you could definitely see it was the shape of a, you know, sort of scrunched up uh, figure. And we're like, I cannot believe this. So you're thinking to yourself, well, what's that got to do with the pizza bomber? Exactly. Well, 8631 Peach is where the pizzas are delivered. Ten steps from that driveway is 8645 Peach, Bill Rothstein's garage. So now his garage is right, I mean, 10 steps from where Brian Wells gets a bomb strapped around his neck to rob a bank. And you mentioned something, I don't know if it ties into what we talked about here, but you said there was dirt on uh, Brian's legs. Does that tie back into this location or is that something different? Ties right into the tower site. So basically what happens is Brian Wells shows up at the tower site. and, and when you say tower, I, t- tell me about uh, yeah. What what does tower mean? That. Yeah, I'm thinking that you're from Upper Peach Street in here. Um, it's basically a, a satellite dish site where our NBC affiliate and CBS affiliate have big uh, satellite dishes. So they call it the tower site, but it's probably three four hundred yards off of the road, and it's in a wooded. You would you don't see it from the road. You can't you got to drive back a long dirt road. And that was another one of those questions. Why would Brian Wells deliver a pizza all the way back down a dirt road that he has no idea what's back there? Normally those delivery drivers don't like to do that. He did. And that was another, just one of those spokes in the wheel of, wow, this is crazy. Um, but he, he did that day, but 8645 right next door to where this is. And now we open up this freezer and there's a dead body in it. By the way, we tried to get the body out and it was frozen so hard in that freezer that we had to pull the plug on the freezer and put it in a van and drive it to the coroner's office. And that thing sat for like three or four days before they could get the body out of it. It was so frozen in there. So uh, now you got three dead people within three weeks. Are they related? And that was my job as the FBI agent. How do these link? You know, we know Brian Wells and Robert Panetti probably could link because they're both pizza delivery from the same shop, but they're dead in different circumstances. But now how's a dead body who shot twice in the back with a shotgun end up in a freezer right next to where the site is? How is that linked? And that was the whole real difficulty of the case linking those three so how do you do it well 
the first thing you do is go interview Bill Rothstein, right? Now, the state police have a dead guy in a freezer with a shotgun blast, two of them to the back. I'm looking at it as, hey, you're right next to this place where a pizza delivery driver got a bomb put around his neck. And there was a little discussion on whether or not I could even interview him that night because they had their case and they were very interested in the murder of who turned out to be James Roden in the freezer. So they finally say, all right, Jerry, uh, you can go in and interview him. So because the district attorney had that case where the U.S. attorney had my case. And let's let's make a distinction here because a lot of people may this they may not know the inside baseball stuff but there is no federal statute on just a straightforward homicide i mean if i shoot my next door neighbor because i don't like them that's not an fbi case there has to be a federal nexus so part of the challenge for you is unless you can establish a nexus between this murder and your case that's it's a straightforward commonwealth of pennsylvania district attorney case with no fbi involvement exactly right and that was the reticence of having me go in and interview them, but they, you know, they all knew me, the DA, I knew, because I, I, again, there's that eerie connection. I grew up here, people knew uh, who I was, and so it, it, it helped me. So they said, yeah, go on in, you can interview them. So I'll never forget that interview as long as I live. Even all the Marjorie Deal ones that we'll talk about in a second, Bill Rothstein, wow, was as unique as anybody I've ever interviewed. I walk in, and this is one thing Evil Genius did very well because I got to describe it. And so I knew it was true. Um, I walk in, I was alone. Normally you might have a second chair or somebody in there with you. I went in alone and I sat down. I said, Bill, Jerry Clark with the FBI, how you doing? You mind if I ask you a couple questions? And his first response was, no, I don't mind. He said, but I need to tell you something. I said, what's that, Bill? He said, I'm the smartest guy in this room. And I look, I look around and I go, yeah, well, it's only you and me. And, you know, my wife tells me that all the time. Let's do it. And that was an absolute truth dialogue between him and I. He had to tell me how smart he was. Well, initially, when I heard that, I started thinking of those notes, you know, because those notes, nine pages. Yeah, right? somebody, somebody's got to have the time, the mentality, the structure to be able to put that together, right? Yeah. And in those notes, something I neglected to tell you, the one to the police, it said, we spent seven and a half years perfecting this. You're not going to figure it out. Meaning you're a dumbass cop and I'm really, really smart, Bill Rosti. So I, I felt that, that, that smarter than me mentality. He never signed it. I Let's said. just be clear. He never signed it. Bill Rothstein in the memo, right? Or in the, no, the manual. No. Okay. No, he, he, he was smart enough. I guess in that regard, but he definitely had that, that fever or flair to it, you know, that pitch. So then I said, Bill, you know, you live, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, I'm not here to talk to you about the guy in your freezer, but you live very close to a, a place that is interesting to me. Can you tell me about that road that's next to you? And he said, Oh yeah, the FBI talked to me about that. That's, uh, I told him I didn't see anything. I never go back there. I, I don't know anything about that. And I said, okay, well, do you know anything? Have you ever met or, or uh, do you know anybody named Brian Wells? Hey, hold on a sec. Had, yeah. Did you know before going into that interview, had he actually been talked to by the FBI? Had they yes. interviewed him? 
Okay. Yes, and I knew that. They had canvassed okay. him. He didn't answer the door the day of, but they got him the next day. And he said, oh, I never go over there. I never go back there. I don't know anything about that. So uh, so they immediately thought, all right. And they took him for that because they didn't know he. And by the way, think of this. When they're interviewing him, he's got a dead body in his freezer. And they didn't even know that. So we didn't know he had that. We didn't know he knew the tower site. We knew nothing about him at the time other than he lived next door to a place where this was rough. Well, I want to interject to say most most evil geniuses don't leave the uh, evidence of the dead body on their property to be discovered at a later time. So I'm just going to poke a hole in the evil genius thing. He thinks he's an evil genius, but as we find out, right? Yeah. And a lot of things they think of uh, related to the name evil genius, they associate with her, with Marjorie, who I'll talk about in one second. But the interesting part is he is the one that put this scheme together. I'll explain what her role was in a second. But so then I said to him and I said, "Okay, if you don't know anything, that's fine. I said, but you got to help me out. Do you mind helping me out, Bill? Because I knew I had an egotist here and a narcissist. And so I kept thinking to myself, oh, you got to take full advantage of this narcissism. So I said, Bill, help me out. I'm just a dumb cop. I, I, FBI, you know, we, we don't know this stuff. Let me ask you a question. He goes, yeah, I'll help you. I said, I'm just going to ask you in a hypothetical. He said, yeah, it's got to be hypothetical. I said, okay, hypothetical, hypothetical. I said, why would Brian Wells, I said, this, this is the part that's a mystery to me. I said, why would Brian Wells who got a bomb strapped around his neck right next door to you, not drive right to the police station and say, get this thing off of me. I got a live bomber on my neck. I got to get it off. And he goes, well, hypothetically, right, Jerry? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, hypothetically, Bill. He said, what if they told him there were wires in the collar and that if he veered off course, he'd get a shock? And I swear to God, to both of you, I almost slid out of the chair because I'm thinking... (laughs) If he made that up in that two seconds, he is an evil genius. Yeah. But he didn't make it up in that two seconds because I knew that there were wires in the collar that went to nowhere and did nothing, but there were wires in that collar. So then I'm going, holy shit. So I go, all right, Bill, let me ask you this hypothetical question. I don't even know how you'd make a pipe bomb. I know nothing about pipe bombs. I said, hypothetically, how would you make a pipe bomb? He said, hypothetically? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'd cut the tops off of shotgun shells and I'd use the black powder. And I'm sitting in there going, oh, my God, that's singular in nature. Nobody knows that. Nobody but Kirk Yeager and any of the investigators that were working it knew. And none of the investigators really even knew. Pipe was black powder from shotgun shells that were cut open. How did, how did they know it was black powder from shotgun shells? I mean, who- what was it? Did they do some uh, spectral analysis or something to say this is certain kind of powder that's only in shotguns? Morgan, they went one step further. This is why I'm fat. This is why the average public doesn't understand mm-hmm. and why we get it so excited. They said, Jerry, these were Remington, you know, bottle, whatever, bird shot with this amount of powder. And I go, how do you know that? And they just, they know, they do these tests and it's incredible what they- Made by they Bill do. Smith on Thursday when he was wearing blue sheen, blue jeans and brown <laughs> shoes, wearing a red shirt. Well, I mean, that's how good this got, right? Oh, it, it, Jerry, 
sold exclusively at Walmart, which you know narrowed me down to 300 million shoppers, but it at least put me in a place where I know I could look for video. And, and then they determined the two kitchen timers because this device was detonated by kitchen timers, not by uh, remote detonation. So it was set, by the way, he drilled a hole in the knob, put a metal piece onto the knob and put two screws. When he dialed the knob for the 60 minutes, as it went around, when that metal piece made contact with another, another metal piece he had as a bar, it detonated the device. So we knew those kitchen timers sold exclusively at Walmart. By the way, it's called sourcing, right? For all you law enforcement buffs out there, sourcing is where you figure out who makes material and where is it sold. Well, we also had a battery holder in it because every IED has a battery or a power source, right? This had two batteries, Dorsey batteries, which I had never heard of, sold exclusively at Walmart. And then the battery holder was sold exclusively at Radio Shack. So we collected video, which, and I'm not kidding you, VHS tapes at the time, uh, from every Walmart and uh, uh, Radio Shack for 150 miles, down to Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Cleveland. And think about that. It took my whole evidence room in, in videotapes, wow. just to see if you could see someone purchasing those. I then had a Walmart employee from security assigned to the task force, helping look through bar scans to determine if any credit cards were used or if they were cash for purchases of cases of Remington shotgun shells or the combination of shotgun shells and kitchen timers. So listen, this was it. We, we pulled out all the stops and we didn't have a lot of luck with that because if someone purchased something with cash, then they wouldn't necessarily show up with the, 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 the scan. So that sort of was a problem for us. How many shotgun shells would it take to get the powder out of there to cause that bomb to go out or go off? Yeah, I forgot that. That's a great question. Uh, Steve, I forgot the number that they told me, but they said you'd be looking for a case okay. probably. And it, because he had to sort out the BBs mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the bird pellet that's in those were in. And by the way, two of those slipped into the, the pipe bomb. And when the pipe bomb went off, uh, one of the pellets, believe it or not, went right into the thigh of Brian Wells. So now they were saying, how this shotgun pellet end up in his thigh? And as it turned out, it was in the, the black powder. And there's a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm really not sure about this one, I'm getting ready to say, but the, the black powder used in shotgun shells is not like the commercial grade black powder that you would buy in a big can because of the smokeless properties of it. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And that also in the, in the commercial grade, they used to, Put what are called taggets. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't pretend to know a lot about this because I, I, I didn't before I did this, but and the taggets could identify the black powder. So what Bill Rothstein's thought was if there's taggets in there, I don't want to have them say I bought it in Erie. So that's why he used the shotgun shells, which didn't have those identifiers in it. Wow. Hey, Jerry, but he didn't realize that they could figure out that it was still a, a shotgun shell. At the height of this investigation, how many people were on it? So I'm saying that there were 75 investigators coming to the briefings. 
and people answering phones and people involved in undercover. We had some people looking at different, there was a trailer site that was mentioned in one of the notes. So we had some people rent the trailer and live in the trailer to see if we had so much going on that never gets mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that's just stuff you do in big cases, complex cases. But yeah, at, at any one time, 71 or 75 investigators uh, coming in for briefings. Wow. And like you say, you feel like now you're more of a manager, administrative person, right? As opposed to an investigator. Is that kind of frustrating? That was so frustrating. <laughs> I was so out of my league. Uh, you know, I don't like writing you know, uh, briefs that go to the director, urgent reports. I don't like, you know, writing search warrants necessarily where that's all I was doing. And I don't like just having briefings where I'm scratching off leads and they're doing them. You know, I want to do them. I want to go interview. I want to go interrogate. I want to talk to people. So after the dust settled, uh, that's basically what happened. It, Jason Wick and I and Dave Gluth and Jim Brown from the Pennsylvania State Police, that's who was left to start to sort of deal with what we had. And Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who I'm just going to start with right out of the cannon, was arrested immediately for shooting James Roden, the guy that ended up in the freezer. And Marjorie Deal Armstrong was there in the Pennsylvania State Police Barracks the night I interviewed Bill Rusty, the night he turned him in. But when I went to interview her, she had already lawyered up. So I couldn't talk to her. She then was declared incompetent and was sent away to be restored to competence, which took two years until oh, 2005. So I lost her. Bill Rothstein was saying he was helping investigators. He was basically playing everybody. He then, I find out, is in the hospital in July. So I interview him in September. We're still talking to him all the way until July. But in July, I find out he's in the hospital and I said, hey, I'm going to go try to see him. Well, he's represented on the case where he, he was actually charged with abusing a corpse and transporting a body and what all the things he was doing. Because Marjorie shot James Roden in her apartment in the city of Erie, which added another crime scene. She then had Bill Rothstein. She called him on the phone and said, can you help me get rid of this body? He goes over with his van gets the body, puts it in his van, and drives it to his house. Then they go to an appliance store, buy a freezer, put him in the freezer, and that's where he sits. Well, in the meantime, Bill Rothstein was clearing up all the evidence of the murder from her house and bringing all the pieces of evidence to his house, where he was then taking it to a landfill 4,000 pounds at a time on a trailer. So I found receipts for the landfill and all that. Well. Bill Rothstein tells us Marjorie Deal shoots him, and he's cooperating half-ass with investigators on how that happened. In the meantime, he goes into the hospital, and he's sick in July. Hey, so I, Jerry, before you ahead. get to that, let me kind of rewind yeah. just a little bit. I'm very interested. Why was he driving around calling on What was it oh. that triggered that says, hey, I'm going to off myself? What started this whole chain in motion? for you to even have contact with these guys? So this is, a, this is maybe the most important question ever because a lot of people have said, if he doesn't turn in that body, you know, you may have never solved this thing. 
And in a way, it, he might have been, you know, people that say that are true. Here's what happened. Marjorie Deal starts panicking that that body's still sitting in his garage. And she says, Bill, you got to cut this body up with a chainsaw and put it in an ice crusher. And we're going to spread all the body around the county so that we don't have any evidence that there was ever a James Roden who oh ever gosh. lived. That sounds like Fargo and feeding the guy <laughs> through the wood chipper. It's, it's exactly what it was. That's gross. So Bill Rothstein tells us that he's getting pressure from her every day. You got to do this. You got to do this. He got so paranoid, he thought she was going to shoot him. So what he said to Floyd Stockton, who's another twist in this crazy case, a fugitive who was living in his house, wanted out of the state of Washington for raping a, a disabled, uh, mentally challenged female. Uh, he tells him, I'm going to meet Marge. If I'm not back in 15 minutes, she killed me. He was that concerned she was going to kill him. So he finally said, you know what? I can't take this anymore. I'm going to turn her in. No way she's going to tell about the pizza bomber because she's involved in it. So I'm going to turn her in for the death of James Rodner, boyfriend. So that's why he decides he's going to call the police and turn her in so she doesn't kill him. And it was that paranoia that, that led him to that. And he's the smartest guy in the room. And he's the smartest guy. <laughs> I was only second out of two. <laughs> so I don't get this. So he's a concern that she's going to kill him. But he goes yeah. out into his car and say, I'm going to kill myself. So either way, it looks like this dude's dying, but it's like he just doesn't want it to be her. He's going to kill himself and turn and rat her out, right? It was part of that narcissism that, that led him to think that he could throw us off course by thinking he was so distraught, the pressure, that he was just going to kill himself. But he never was going to kill himself because the guy just was— Was too narcissistic for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So he used that as a ruse and even wrote a, a two-page, and again, back to the multiple page, suicide note. And number one, he listed them, one, two, three, and four. Number one was, my suicide had nothing to do with the Wells case, which I looked at it and said, well, who would have ever thought that? Right? You know, and I had so, nothing to do with Jimmy Hoffa either. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Right. So the whole thing was just so bizarre, and he was – way overthinking uh, himself and thinking he was criminally very smart. He bragged being Mensa and all this, his intelligence, his IQ was 187. He just was not that smart. He just always viewed himself that way. So once he turned his, okay. her in, then I couldn't interview her. She sent away for competence. Now we're doing a variety of things from 2003 to 2000, 2005 trying to connect these dots, but it was hard because in July, I go to see him in the hospital, right? I'll never forget this scene either. He's laying in the bed. He's got his lawyer there because he's represented. I had to bring the district attorney, not the U.S. attorney, because it was the, you know, the, the murder case. He's with me, and I was there to ask him some questions, but I see how sick he is. And I had already told you guys about my father and watching him, you know, through the whole process. And I said, man, this freaking guy's dying. There's no way I'm going at him. So I start going at him. I said, Bill, 
cleanse your soul. Don't take this with you. Tell me these cases are related. And he lifts his big arm out of the bed and he says, no. He drew an N and an O. And he wouldn't tell me. And four days later, he's dead. Now, did he know he had, did he know, when did he find out he was sick? Well, that's the interesting part of this thing. And something that we don't find out until later. He had leukemia and he went into remission and then it came back. And so I'm thinking that he knew when he was doing this case and putting this whole scheme together. That he wasn't going to survive it anyway. He wasn't surviving it anyway. Hey, so crazy. Go back one thing. One of the things in your kind of timeline you put up here, too, it says um, when you interviewed him on September 24th, you questioned Rothstein. He makes an admission that says he may have used the payphone that was the final source of the final call to Wells. Why would he make an admission like that? Because, and here's why, he didn't know if I had videotape of the outside and he had been to that payphone. And so she was very smart, and they must have talked about this. Where was so the payphone located at? So it was at a shell station, again on Peach Street, in between where his house was and where the, where the bank was, right in the middle. And it was in the parking lot. Now, the funny thing is, or the ironic thing, I didn't have exterior footage because they didn't have outside cameras. But I did have interior footage of the inside of the Shell station, which turned out to be important to me later. But what's interesting, he didn't know that. So when he said, do you have footage or do you have cameras at the Shell station? Then you could tell I was there or not. And I said, well, of course they do, Bill. And he said, well, I have used the payphone. So he knew he had to admit it because if he saw, if I saw him on the payphone, he could at least say, oh, I was there calling my aunt or I was calling my, my, my brother. But he couldn't lie if he was there and he had already told me he wasn't. So, but I didn't have that. I didn't have that footage. I just told him I did. So that's why he made that admission. So we go from 2003 to 2005. He's now dead. She's in jail, incompetent, being held until she restores the competence. I'll never forget. We get a call. Marjorie is now declared competent, and she's going to come to Erie and plead guilty for shooting James Roden. And she's worked out an amazing plea deal, 7 to 20, which is incredible. Which, by the way, was not her first murder that she was uh, pled guilty or found guilty of, right? Thank you for bringing that up, Steve. (laughs) She goes back to the 1980s and 70s in Erie. Her first boyfriend, she shot six times while he was sleeping on the couch and was acquitted for uh, a battered spouse syndrome defense. Um, She got free on that. And by the way, this is the interesting part. Remember when I told you I started in parole and probation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I had Marjorie deal on intensive supervision. You shitting me. You had wow. contact with her back then. Listen, this is <laughs> Dude, so why crazy. don't you have her parole revoked and send her back to prison? We could have avoided all of this. <laughs> this is so crazy. She got acquitted on the on the homicide for shooting the boyfriend, but she got charged with having a uh Ill, uh, unregistered weapon. So she shot him with a regist- uh, a gun that wasn't registered to her. 
So she caught a probation sentence for that. And I had her on the probation. So I was visiting her in her home. I went back and pulled my notes because all my friends in probation, they knew I had her. I pulled them and I looked at them and I wrote, this lady continues to be dangerous. And thank God I wrote it. It didn't matter because uh, she was acquitted. But I wrote, this lady is a danger to society. And I, and I wrote that in the notes. And years later, in 2005, she goes back, pleads guilty, gets sentenced, and it is sent to State Correctional Institution in Muncie, Pennsylvania, which is in the middle of our state near Williamsport. And I'm there the next day with Jason Wick. And we go into this place and go down into the basement. It's like uh, Silence of the Lambs. It felt sort of weird, like one of those old buildings, you know, real old prison. And you go underneath, and um, here she comes. I can hear the chains, you know, from her feet shackled. And I'm sitting there, my heart's beating. I'm thinking, oh, shit, here comes Marjorie Deal Armstrong. And she walks in, and she looks at me. Now, I'm not sure to this day, because we never talked about it, even though I interviewed her 10 times after that. I was never sure if she recognized me from the parole days. But I said, Marge, Jerry Clark, Jason Wick uh, from FBI, we're here to talk to you about the Wells case. And she said, I'm not going to tell you anything about that until you move me closer to Erie. And I said, well, Marge, I'm a federal guy. You're in the state system. You know, I'll see what I can do. But, you know, it's a little bit out of my league. I'll see, I'll see what I can And she said, and before you leave, you better look up a guy named Ken Barnes. So he said, all right. So we leave. I start making calls. We get her transported. Of course, I'm going to get her transferred. We got her transferred up to a, a correctional facility in Albion, Pennsylvania. Uh, it, well, it was actually in Cambridge Springs, the female prison. Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania, which is 20 minutes from, from Erie. So now I have full access to when I can go see her. It was now, she's, she's thinking that you're doing her a favor. She, she's actually doing you a favor because you don't have to drive oh. all the way down there to interview yeah. her now. <laughs> she, she did us a huge favor, and now I can go see her. And she didn't lawyer up, which was amazing. In the meantime, we're checking on Ken Barnes. And Ken Barnes was a crack dealer. We find out his criminal history. We know all about him. We know he, he bought and sold crack constantly. We knew where he lived. But what was interesting is we had crack come up in this case, and that was through the prostitute. And when we interviewed the prostitute, Jessica, she would tell us, well, I knew Brian Wells, and I would have him drive me to go get crack cocaine. What we failed to ask her is, where did you go get crack cocaine? But now that we know Ken Barnes is a crack cocaine dealer, we go back to Jessica. She was always in the most unbelievable state of addiction. Two or three times during our time with her, we would take her right to a, a facility for her to get help and treatment. And she'd last two days and be back out prostituting. So we found her again. We said, Jessica, take us to where you bought crack cocaine. She drove us to Ken Barnes's house. So now we say to her, no, wait a second. You brought, Brian Wells brought you to this house to buy crack? Yes. So now we're making our links. It took until we made our links between Brian, Marjorie, Bill Rothstein, Ken Barnes, 
and uh, at Floyd Stockton, it took Jessica to make that link. And so now we're going, okay, here we go. So we go to Ken Barnes, we're interviewing Ken Barnes. He's telling us all sorts of stuff. Oh yeah, that guy used to come here, but I don't know him. And over many iterations, probably 20 or more interviews, Ken Barnes, we put in front of the grand jury and he finally started telling the truth. So Ken Barnes finally told us that Jessica would bring Brian over to the house. They asked Brian if he would, Brian Wells, if he would get involved in a bank robbery, that they would pay him for the robbery. And if he got caught, he was a hostage. If he didn't get caught, he'd get his 5,000 and he'd be done. And it would be a fake device. He would never get hurt and he'd go home either way. And the minute you heard it was a fake device, did anything click? Did it, did all of a sudden, uh, uh, Brian, uh, his, his demeanor and stuff, when did it, what did the point I should say, did it trigger that, ah, you know, now we know. And that was it because now we knew this now made sense. He never knew it was real. He was told it was fake. They had a pre-planning meeting the day before the bank robbery and Brian Wells was at the pre-planning meeting. So we know he was involved. He was at the site before. Brian Wells was at the pre-planning meeting. Ken Barnes told us he was there. Marjorie told us he was there. Marjorie said she was at the pre-planning meeting, but she didn't know why she was there. So she said, and to the day she died, she claimed she had no idea that Bill Rothstein set her up. But here was the whole crux of the case. And here's why this now will all make sense, hopefully, to the listeners. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was an only child, and she had, her father had like two million bucks. And she wanted it now. So she went to Ken Barnes and said, would you kill my father? And he said... <laughs> Yeah, I'll kill your father, but I need 250000 So they thought, well, where am I going to get 250000 Well, the whole crux of this bank robbery was to rob the bank to get the money to pay Ken Barnes to kill her father to get $2 million. And that's the pizza bomber plot. Everything else then became a scheme that was invented by Bill Rothstein on how to rob the bank. Brian Wells to go to sites to get a key to unlock the collar, to take his collar off, to have uh, uh, the detonation, to have him not be a witness, to kill him intentionally. That was all Bill Rossi. And you know, how many years did it take you to get to this point from <laughs> the bank robbery until now? How, how deep are you into this? So we're into this until 2007 in July we indict Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Ken Barnes. Bill Rothstein had died so he was an unindicted co-conspirator. Brian Wells had died, he was an unindicted co-conspirator. Unfortunately, um he was tricked, but he was involved in the plot. Floyd Stockton became a cooperator and so he was given immunity against the wishes of the investigators. But we don't prosecute, we investigate, and the, you know, the prosecutors make the decision. And so in 2007, we finally charged those two with conspiracy to commit a bank robbery 
in which a death resulted. And that was our homicide charge in the federal system. And that's how you can bring, that's how you can pull the homicide into federal jurisdiction because there's a nexus to a federal offense. But I thought one of the interesting things too was, I mean, we're talking about like four years until the indictment comes, but the grand jury has been meeting for almost two years. Their term is about to expire. In other words, you're about to lose your grand jury. You know what? Uh, and I think I can talk about that, uh, but they extended them. So they kept them on uh, and extended our grand jury for two more years. So they went all the way to 2007 with that same case. Wow. Yeah, they got a special dispensation for extension. And let everybody know why that's important. Because, I mean, look, to serve for two years, I mean, that, that's that's a long time. To serve for four years, uh, I don't know how your math is. My math says that's twice as long, right? So, yeah. But wh why was it so important to extend the initial grand jury? It was so important because we had so much information that we presented over those four years that if you had to redo that in two years, with a whole nother jury, it would have been just might take you two years just to do that. And you'd be continuously every two years getting a new grand jury. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in there constantly testifying. I testified, we ran witnesses through there. Uh, so we had constant uh, testimony through those four years. I, I mean, you know what we've got, you don't, <laughs> you probably don't know this, Jerry, but uh, we have a Patreon channel and one of the, one of the things that we post on there is is a monthly episode of You Can't Make This Shit Up. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is perfect for that. Yeah. This is a perfect, you can't make this case up. I When I speak, I go to all over, investigators, law enforcement, local, state, federal. I, I, I remember specifically speaking in Florida at, at a Florida homicide investigators conference. And it was so ironic. One of the guys came up and believe me, homicide investigators have seen it all. They've seen everything you could possibly see. And he said to me, if I didn't think you made this up, I wouldn't believe it. And I said, I promise you, I, everything in this is true. He said, this is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard. And I thought, wow, coming. And you know who spoke behind me? The Kaylee Anthony investigators. So I'm doing Pizza Bomber. And then I think they either spoke ahead of me or behind me. But um, I thought, wow, what a fascinating case that is. And then to hear mine and say, that's one of the most bizarre fucking things. Uh, excuse me. One of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard oh, in my, my ears. My ears. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, we, we say that all the time. It's like, and that's the thing, too, is when you look back on it. So it took you four years to get indictments, but then it's not just indictments. Now you have to prepare and you have to go to trial. And that's a whole nother convoluted mess, getting all these people to trial, right? Well, exactly. She was declared incompetent again now by the federal judge. So Judge McLaughlin, who did an amazing job with her, by the way, he sent her back for restoration. So we could not go to trial from 2007 until 2010. So now she finally, Ken Barnes came in in 2008 and pled guilty, to his credit, to 45 years in jail. And he pled, knowing he's never getting out in his role in the pizza bomber, agreed to testify against her. Then in 2010, why, she Why did he have that. such a change of why? Why would he plead and then still cooperate? Because it's not going to do him any good. You know what he told us? Uh, he told us his life in prison was healthier for him than his life on the street as a crack dealer. 
and he said, I'm going to die out there. He, his physical health was a mess. And he actually died in prison uh, very early. And, and he just was never going to live long because he mistreated his body uh, to the point of no return. His house was the most disgusting mess I had ever been in in all the search warrants and door knocks or whatever I had ever done. Uh, so it was, it was horrible. Marjorie's too. They were hoarders. And it was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. So this is kind of his penance. He, he says, look, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to at least live a better life. And, and there, Murph, you and I talked about this on another episode. There are some people who commit crimes simply to go back to prison because that's the only life they know. Some of the Aryan Brotherhoods, you know, some right. of the other folks, they've got more power and prestige inside of prison than they do outside. So they, they want to go back. But so he testifies against her. He gets 45 years. Um, but she's got, got a, reduced, well, you know, for his testimony, then they reduced him 20. So he ended up down to 25, but he never, he died before long before those and were, were for done. our long time, what we call players, our listeners out there, we know that tends to be rule 35 is cooperation. Yes. That's exactly right. He received substantial assistance and then he certainly got a rule 35. So he was reduced down. And then Marjorie went to trial three week long. We had 51 witnesses. I testified six hours. Hey, but uh, hold on a second yeah. before that, Jerry. I think what's interesting in your timeline is that she also gets a diagnosis too. She gets a cancer diagnosis. And the question is, is she going to live long enough to make it worthwhile to prosecute yeah. her? And we had that discussion. We had that discussion with the U.S. attorney. Hey, should we really prosecute somebody dying of cancer? Or she could, you know, go into remission and live forever. Who knows? And we came up with the decision, no, we need to have justice be served and we're going to trial. Because the easy thing would have done, was she would have stayed in jail the rest of her life. Uh, but that was not the right thing to do. The right thing was, in my mind, for the family to get justice and, and to go and see, hear that guilty verdict. And that's what we did. Absolutely. Hey, she's, she, she's gotten away with so many murders. Oh, I figured in, in one of our books called Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong, uh, Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer, a lot of psychology in that. So if you like the psychology aspect, uh, you know, take a, take a read of Mania. If you like the investigative accent, you know, uh, part, that's the Pizza Bomber book. Then we did a book, History of Heist, Bank Robberies in America. And then my last one is On the Lamb. That was The Hunting Fugitives in America. Uh, through my Dayton task force. But uh, with her, I got to tell you, she killed at least five people. And so I, I, I can know of five. Uh, but one she hit in the head with a baseball bat was never charged. She said he fell and hit a coffee table. You know, Jim Roden, she killed with a shotgun blast too. Uh, and she just was a, a one of the Eileen Wernos of, of female serial killers. I mean, when you look at how rare that is, Eileen Wernos used a gun. Very few females, even if they are serial killers, they may kill by suffocation or, or poison. poison. Yeah, or something yes. else. We actually had a case, uh, Mommy's Little Angels, you can find the book on um, Amazon, but written, around, written about a lady named Diane Lambra out of our county. And if it wasn't for a forensic pathologist by the name of Dr. Eva Vockel, who took a look at this and said, no, there's petechiae in the eyes. This baby was smothered. She was basically, she, it was Munchausen by proxy. She would, she would get a, she would get a 
<laughs> an insurance policy on a nephew or a niece, babysit them, take them into the ER the day before, say, oh, they're feeling bad or whatever, and then mysteriously the next day they would die. Well, when you go, she had gotten away with that three other times between Oklahoma and Texas, and then when you go back, maybe four times, I think it was, and the same thing. I'm surprised that they didn't they didn't classify her as a serial killer, but you can find that as uh, Mommy's Little Angels. But anyway, the one of the fun one of the fun games to play too is, and and you, if you've been to enough trials, when they come back and it takes days to come back, that's usually not good. That's like uh, you know probably going to be not guilty when they come back. Like when it takes them longer to elect the you know the four person of the jury than it does to render the verdict, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Tell us about this one. I mean, an extremely complex case. By the time you get there, I mean, you're talking about November 1st, 2010, before you finally get a verdict in this trial. We're talking over seven years later. Yeah. How long does it take? How long is the jury out? They were about a day and a half. uh, But we had three weeks of trial and 51 witnesses. And I think they were going over some of the complex charging in the federal system because like you said there is no homicide statute and then they had uh another uh count which was the use of a destructive device and so they had to go over some really detailed information but to their credit they they read through it they they came out with that guilty verdict and i'll never forget hearing that and just you know sitting back going oh my god you know what a relief um i just and because your investigation goes on trial is basically mm-hmm. what it is. Well, even you more like than that, think, you go on trial. Everything yeah. you've done goes on trial. Yeah. And you like to think it's the defendant, but, you know, did you give, when when I was being cross-examined, you know, did you give her a break? Did you read her Miranda? Did you, and thank God we Mirandized her every time. And I, I didn't have to because, but I felt compelled uh, that it would come up and we, we gave her breaks and, and we did everything that we 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 did because I knew it was coming. But you become on trial, and so when your trial when your trial is over and your investigation stood up to to the truth, uh, because that's what you're following the truth in the evidence that leads you to the truth. Uh, you just feel this this immense sense of accomplishment. Mm. Well, according to your notes, it only took eleven hours and thirty minutes, which, quite frankly, for taking seven years to get there, the complexity of this, that is a short time. I mean, that is yeah. not a long time to get this. You're in the courtroom when the verdict is announced? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm sitting right at the table. What, Always what, there next to Marge. She's what were the bets? The huh? What were the bets? What was the line? You know, everybody in Erie would come up to me and go, if you don't know Marjorie Deal and Bill Rothstein are involved, then you, you're crazy yourself. I had one former FBI person, not a retired, which is different, yep. say, if he doesn't know Marjorie and Bill are involved, then he should be delivering pizzas. And that's the <laughs> stuff that you just got to take it. You know, oh, yeah. you got to put on your big boy suit and you got to just get beat up. And I was getting beaten up. but incompetence, death, links. It all took a while. You know, these are complex matters and there's this little thing called evidence. And so we yeah, got there, and a, and a, a jury trial. So as you're sitting there, what, what's the bets? I mean, are, wh- how are you feeling? Do you feel, do you and the assistant U S attorney in the field people go, yeah, we got this, she's guilty or look, 
She's got a history of getting off on some very serious charges. Mm -hmm. She's got like some kind of gambler's luck going on here. What were you thinking before the verdict was read? Just as they're starting to get up, are you thinking we got her? Or are you going, oh, shit, I don't know, seven years down the drain? Yeah, I, there was a bit of panic because it did go into, like you said, it was 11 hours, but they went into the next day. So I started thinking, man, this they should have been back in two hours, you know, or an hour. And, and, and then I started to second guess myself. But then. I kept saying, Jerry, listen, they're bright. They they heard what you heard. It's it's all there. You know, you did you did what what you thought was right. And uh but yeah, you gotta you gotta feel that creep come in where you're like, oh shit, you know, did I make a mistake? And so when the verdict is read, what's it like for you? Oh my god, I'll never well, forget well, what, it. I sat verdict? back and what was the it verdict? was guilty on all counts and she she received life in prison, plus an additional 30 years for the use of a destructive device, which they have to give a, a you know, a, a deposition to. So that's why there's, because people say, well, she got life, why'd she get another 30 years? Well, it's just another count, but I'll never forget in the book, that's an absolute true story. My family, who is so loving and supportive, I have the best family, my wife, my two children, who I adore, my brother's my sister, my mother, uh, we went to this uh, this place right near us called the Erie Club, and we had dinner. And I'll never forget this because uh, it's a true story, and I'm embarrassed, really, to say it. No, but don't I'm be embarrassed. Also honest when I say, you know, they they said, you know, say something, and I stood up, and I literally started bawling. I just started crying like a baby. And, you know, they're all patting me. And so I'm almost crying now uh, because I'm reliving the moment. But mm -hmm. when I think about that, I just think what they went through, you know, and what I went through, and it was tough. It you was know, tough. you know, we've, we've, uh, trust me, brother, you're not the first person that the emotions have gotten the better of on these interviews yeah. that we do. And it's, I like to point it out because it shows the dedication and the sacrifice by not only you, but your family to get to the bottom, to get to the freaking truth and bring people to justice. And even all these years later, look at oh. the emotional impact it has on you. I mean, it just changes your entire life. Yeah. So I, 19 I, years later and, um, and I still can be brought to tears with it. And Jason Wick and, and the Pennsylvania state police um, and the people that work this case, the Erie police, you know, they all had skin in it, you know, and mm -hmm. everybody has feelings and emotions. And, you know, when people say hurtful things and we know what the truth is, but we want to prove it in court. And it, it was it was challenging. It was one of the most challenging things. Well, I ever here's thought. the thing. If for some reason she would have been acquitted, they would have looked at you, said, Jerry, you lost the case. Why did you lose the case? Jerry, why no did doubt. you? Right. And it's like. And, and it's unfortunately it goes with the territory because this was your case from the beginning. But the good news is it didn't happen that way. You got the convictions and look, uh, you know, was the emotion more about just that this is finally done with that you feel like you've been vindicated in spite of all the stuff that's going on, or was it more something else? This is going to sound corny. Uh, and I'm not I do corny. corny I do corny very well. Don't well, worry. Yes, he is. Yes, you, he is. For, <laughs> for my city and the town that I talk about so much in Erie, Pennsylvania and, People tell me I hate hearing that 
when I go to California and I say I'm from Erie and they say, oh, that's where the pizza bomb is. I wanted finality. I wanted people to know, hey, we have our shit together here and we got this thing done. And this is a good place. And we had bad thing happen in a good place, you know, and it could have been anywhere USA. It happened right. to be here. But I wasn't quitting until I gave Erie some finish to this thing. And I really, truly believe that. And to all the people that worked it, I felt like I owed it to them and to Jason Wick, who I said went through so much. Uh, and he's with me today. He teaches at Gannon University here with me. I brought him here. He now has a PhD and, and we teach together and, and we're like brothers. And the state police, you know, those guys put so much effort in and you know the eerie you know i just can't speak highly enough this i get the credit as jerry clark doing you know the lead guy but there's a people in there that are there you know and so uh i'll never forget what it did for me and for the community and that's why to this day i can't stop talking about it i really i can't well people need to know about this you know the um my, part, my other partner, Javier Pena, and I, we talk about the Escobar investigation and all that, and we present it as a lesson in history, you know, and I just had a con- I did an interview yesterday, and, and I'm explaining, why do we study history? We learn, the, the premise is we learn from our mistakes, so we don't make the same mistakes again, but the truth is we never learn from our damn mistakes, it seems like. No, and we just constantly need to be in that position where we feel like we're doing something. One last story I'll give you, I promise. Uh, my brother, I have very successful family, doctors and, 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 and running hospitals. And, and, but my brother, Greg, who's a CEO of this company in Cleveland, Ohio. And one day he calls me, and this is for all you law enforcement people out there. One day he calls me and he checks online all the, all the time when I was an FBI agent doing my thing. And he saw on, on Go Erie, which is this site, you know, what's happening, you know, FBI arrests child predator with 30,000 pictures of child pornography and movies. And, and my brother calls me and he says, you know, uh, I made a lot of money today. You know, I'm very successful, but I did nothing as important as what you did because I just saw you on Go Weird. Wow. And I sat back in my chair and I said, Greg, wow. I never really think of it that way. You know, mm-hmm. I think I'm just doing my thing, you know? He said, I did nothing that important. So for you people who do this job, you know, God bless you because we stand between chaos and sanity and keep doing it, keep fighting the fight. We we need us out there. Absolutely. And to the people like that, that former FBI guy who didn't have the balls to hang in there and do the job for a career, but now Thank he's a freaking expert who wants his five seconds of fame on TV and he's Thank willing to say anything. Screw you, pal. You couldn't Thank hack you. it as the law enforcement professionals, and now you think you're a pro? Screw you. You know, Screw you. You know what right I would have done, on. Jerry, if my brother was, mm. you know, very rich and stuff, I would have said, you feel bad? Yeah. couple million will assuage your guilt. <laughs> yeah. Just send it to me. I said, we'll call well, it even. Our family Hilton Head trip's coming up, so if you want to cover my share, I'm, I'm not go. that proud. <laughs> Hey, well, I, oh, I got to tell you, Jerry, man, this is what, uh, during this time, we kind of want to bring this to a close by talking about what you're doing now, but mm-hmm. during this seven years, how many other cases, uh, did you end up, I mean, obviously this one continued to be like, you kept working on it, but you obviously had to carry some other cases, right? So, yeah. uh, 
you know, was there ever the danger? Did you feel like, man, we're just not going to solve this. We're not going to get there. Did you ever reach that kind of what they call trough of despair where it's like, ah, this is just, it's the end. We're not going anywhere with it. I was feeding in the trough at one point, but my, (laughs) again, my, my inability to say no. And, and you know what? I had other cases. So I was dealing with other bank robberies and other child porn and, and other, you know, kidnappings and all different types of cases. So, and then I was running the Erie office until we got a new supervisor in. And then they said, well, you can have the supervisor job uh, or you can keep your case. And I said, I can't give this case away. You know, it would take forever uh, to get somebody up to speed. So I'm going to stay with it. And I did them both for a while. And then they finally brought in Andrew Wilson as the supervisor. And we did great things. And Bob Rudge supervised from Pittsburgh. But yeah, to answer your question, um, I'm just absolutely uh, thrilled that we were able to get to the end and we never gave up, even though we thought we might have not been able to make the We knew who did it. Mm-hmm. But to make those links are well, vital. and you got so many variables. Somebody's dying. I mean, literally, you got people dying cancer. Another person develops cancer. People committed suicide. Right. Um, you know, it's just like all the things that potentially could have gone wrong in this case were going for you. But like you say, you just stuck it out. You got it solved. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. When did Netflix reach out to you, and how did that go? So Netflix uh, reached out, and I agreed to cooperate because one thing. Jason Wick and I talked about is if you're going to do this story, you got to have some truth or you got to have the truth. And I knew I wouldn't be naive enough to believe that they wouldn't take some liberty, but please, I'll help you so that you know the truth. So that was my initial intent with Jason. Hey, let's, let's tell him the story. So we did that and we told them the story and they were initially sticking to the real truth until they decided that we want to have some conflictual ending. And that's when they brought the prostitute in who then changed her story and said, Brian didn't know anything. And it just doesn't fit the evidence, but it's interesting because it now leaves out that who did it, you know, was he in, was he out? He was in, he was duped and he was murdered. And I'll always feel bad for the family for that. But unfortunately, he knew the people and they tricked him. Well, as you always say, Murph, right? Hollywood never lets the way of facts get in, you know, get in front of us. Good story, right? That's exactly right. And everything, if you, I didn't realize this until we started dealing with Netflix and I was saying, why are you putting that in there? It's not true. You know, like you show Javier and I are fighting, shoving each other, about to go to fists. Yeah, he and I have never had an. We've never had a disagreement, and we became partners in '91. And you and you ask the producers about, and they're like, "Well, go back and look at any television show that you watch. It's all based on drama and conflict. That's exactly right. It's the drama. It's that drama. If there's no drama, it's not worth telling. But there's enough drama in this. We don't need to invent an ending. This case, this really is unbelievable. I mean, it's it was an enjoyable read. And I I have seen the Netflix documentary. I haven't had the chance to read the book yet. Um, uh, cause I, I let Murph do that. That's one of his few things that he can actually still do now that he's got his surgery well, done. He pictures. can't drive worth there's, a shit, but he can read. There's pictures in the book. 
big pictures. pictures. <laughs> yes, we love pictures. But you know, but 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 like I said, but just even watching you, you read into the documentaries or the the Netflix stuff, and you realize, okay, this is not all true. But just even to watch that, it's the, it's unfortunate too in society that that's it's so fascinating that people they make movies about this stuff, you know, and they make series about this stuff because people sometimes I think get the wrong idea, like with you, Murph. The people get on the email and it's like. Carner Corey, there is no such guy named that. And no, we never yeah. threw anybody out of a helicopter. And no, you know, uh, JP did not work with Lost Peppies. And, you know, so, but <laughs> again, you take the good with the bad. Well, anyway, let's talk about, um, you've got four books, right? That, so we're going to put all of those on our book page for you players listening. We're going to put all of them on your book page. You're going to get an extra one to two sales. I guarantee you, at least we're going to send you through the charts. You're going to be a number one bestseller on the New York times list all over Here's again. One of them. Here's one and of the them. pizza bomber. Yes. So we're, it's we're really gonna... a good, easy read, you know, cause I'm, I'm a crayons and, you know, cartoon guy. So if you, if you, if, if I, and, and my co-author Ed Palatella is a genius. So he took what was in my head and he put it there and I, I couldn't have done it anywhere near that. that well. What do you do to fill the other 300 pages? Yeah. So there's not much in there, right? And there's a lot of space, a lot of, a lot of white space. pages. Yeah. A lot of white pages. No, I'm not kidding. You, you really would enjoy the read because it's very simply done and it, it explains in detail how we did it. And then mania with Marjorie Deal Armstrong, again, more psychology. So if you love the twists and turns in psych, that's it. And then I just found it interesting because I did so many bank robberies, uh, the history of heist uh, bank robberies in America, the very first one in Philadelphia, all the way to some of the very modern ones and the no, no, uh, monikers that mm -hmm. we give the cell phone bandit and the hat, Mad Hatter and all these bank robbers. And then on the lamb, when you're hunting fugitives, it's like nothing you've ever done because people will do amazing things to get away. And so they're just interesting, interesting reads, I think. Yeah, if you're a true crime buff, these are the some of the books you need to be taking. These a look are true at. crime. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. True crime. Absolutely. They're all true. Written by the people who are actually there, not some, you know, swivel chair commando on a Monday going, now here's what I would have done. <laughs> yeah. As we yeah. actually had we actually had guys involved in the uh, DC sniper case, Bill Sarukas from the US Marshals that hunted these guys down. But yet you had all of these people, to your point, Steve O'Pine and getting on there. Well, it's gotta be an angry white male who's this and yeah. that, and yeah. it's gotta be a lone wolf and they were all 100% wrong, and that's the deal. They were 100% wrong. But anyway, let's finish up with what you're doing now because yeah. we got you out of university. You are teaching the Utes of America. What are you yes. teaching and where? You know, I'm at Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania, and it has just been an outstanding experience for me because now I take what I've learned and I bring it out there to these students. I teach investigative concepts. I teach intro to forensic psychology. I teach police function. I teach uh, the inside the criminal mind. So I try to teach those things that I feel I know. I don't like to pontificate about something I don't feel I have a background in. Mm -hmm. And so when these students are hearing, they're hearing from actual experience that I actually did. And it's not just something made up. So I take the book and I take what I know and I marry them together to hopefully have an interesting class or two for them. And I think I'm putting out a, a good quality student out of here. I'll tell you well, what, I'm just listening to the titles of your classes. If I was back in my college days, I would have signed up for every single one of those classes. Well, thank you. 
Yeah, and thank you. Murph, fun. Murph, Murph would have struggled in all all of those classes. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. I'm you know, I mean that's kind of a given, right? <laughs> no, man, that's that's good stuff too. And like you say, you you don't want to pontificate about things you don't know. Well, then you're not destined to be a talking head on TV about all of these cases going on. Because I love when they get, well, why do you think they did it? Well, I think no, you don't know. You got to just say, look, we don't know. I mean, here's the three things you got to look at, but. I, I was just with the recent shootings in New York with the guy who shot all the people on the subway. I mean, it just, I just, I can't listen to people like that anymore because most of the time these are folks who have been out of the business for 20 years, but are mm -hmm. still trying to talk. Well, I, it's gotta be this. You don't know. No. And if you don't have the facts, it's just not your position. And that's why I'll do, I've done Dateline. I've done snapped. I've done oxygen channel shows. I'm, I'm coming out on a couple other new ones coming out. I do those because I know it's me talking about what I did. Yeah. If it, if I'm not talking about somebody else's thing. It's first I, I person, just, and that's right. always more authoritative. I love listening yeah. to first person stuff. We had Dave Reichert, the Green River Killer, on to hear him talk about – I mean, you talk about somebody who tracks somebody down for 19 years. Wow. You know, I, I mean, just – well, it's it's not a competition. It's like seven, nine – doesn't matter. It's the toll on the family. It's the toll on you, you know, the things. But now you're teaching the youths of America the way it ought to be done, and – uh, hopefully they're paying attention. Yeah. And th there's a good, good bit of knowledge going on in there. A lot of them are wanting to, and they come in and say, I want to do what you did. And I said, well, here's the process. Now you can't think you're going to get from here to there, but you have all the capacity to get there. You just have to not listen to no, move around people that are negative and believe in yourself because I'll tell you, it, it, it can beat you down to think mm -hmm. you can walk in and become something immediately. And a lot of our youth today believe they can do that. They want the can. corner office right away, or it's like they want to, I want to get in law enforcement, but I only want to work Monday through Friday, you know, eight to oh five. And that I want six is figures. not happening, Skippy. Yeah. I want a six figure salary to go along with that. Yes. You know, just so Thanks. you know, you don't go into law enforcement to get wealthy. No, no, you don't. You do the to help and and you know it's a nice living, but like you said, there's people making far more. But I I, I go back to that. Hey, I did something important today, thing, and I it, it does make you get a smile about what we do. But you, but you just hit upon it though. A lot of a lot of people don't realize everybody makes a difference in their community, whether they just took a couple low level street dealers off because it's a quality of life issue. You solved a a, a string of auto burglaries. Auto burglaries used to piss me off because it was. It pierced the veil of, of privacy and protection. People, they thought that they had their house. They got into my car. You know, they stole stuff. People don't realize uh, it's not just crime, but it's fear of crime that really drives how people feel about living in their community. And you got to address both, both the actual crime and how much people fear living where they do. And look, I got to tell you, man, um, I'll sign up for one of your courses. We'll come in there and uh, um, we'll just, uh, well, we'll have a little fun. By the way, here's what I'm thinking. We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to bring this to a close, but here's what I'm thinking, Steve, I'm thinking, you know, maybe we have a, uh, an event to where people can pay to join in and get the real story. Uh, you know, there, this is only a podcast, but you know, to see the video of it, to see the pictures and everything, maybe what we do is we make you famous is, is only we can in our own special way, but we might do something, you know, maybe there's something in the future we could do to help you raise some money and pay for your trip to Hilton Head, because I know your brother's not going to keep doing it every year. So anything we can do they, to put food on the table, keep, we're here to help. Keep covering the lonely law enforcement guy. You know, they say, come on, get some money yourself. 
So that would be helpful. So you let me know what I need to do and I'll, uh, I'll definitely jump in. Well, as you folks are listening out there, if you would, if you would think that that would be, you would love to see the presentation, to see the pictures done by the people who were there, you let us know and maybe we'll put an event together for you. And uh, Jerry's kids, you know, it's just like Jerry Lewis used to do the Labor Day, Jerry's kids. We're raising money for Jerry's kids. Yeah. It's much more correct than a GoFundMe that I'm not proud enough to do. Yeah. I want to go on vacations. Here's my GoFundMe. And my question, fuck you, go get a job. That's right. I don't... (laughs) How do you know he's a he's your good friend? Yeah, yeah he told me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan of your show, and I got to tell you, I watched that as a DEA agent, and I just was, I couldn't stop. I mean, that was just. And again, a lot of it may be made up or whatever, but uh, just what you and your partner did, uh, Javier, uh, you know, that's you're you're keeping that scourge from getting here. And uh, that's a big deal. Well, today it's about you. (laughs) So, well, I'm not good at that, but I can tell you this. I'll come see you guys wherever you are. I'm very big fans. We'll, we'll talk. Right. We, we, we got guys. We know guys. You know guys. We'll all get together and we'll talk about it. So, hey, man, I got to tell you, it, again, it goes back to if you want to hear the real deal, this is the real deal. And Jerry, dude, again, I was kidding you, but, you know, it's it's state law. We have to make fun of the FBI. You guys are always yeah. the fun ones to make fun but I But let me tell you this, and I say this in all seriousness. There have been lots of times, cases I've worked with the Bureau, um, uh, times where, like, my friends, like, down in Colleyville where they needed the help. Let me tell you, when it's time to saddle up, you know, and the people are coming in. It's it's very comforting to see when you can see the professionals from all the agencies show up. And there are times there are things that the FBI does better than anybody else in the world. And uh, we're glad that you're on our side. So, uh, again, we thank you for all your work, your support. This is me saluting you, saying thank you for your service to our country there, Jerry. And uh, we'll hey, look again. Hang on, because we're going to I think we'll put something together. We, we got to tell this story just a little bit more. So. You let me know. I'll come see you wherever you are. All right. Well, everybody, let, yeah, thanks, brother. Everybody else, you, you, my brothers. You, guys hang, you guys hang on, and everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, I kidded Jerry right at the beginning. I say, you're not an FBI agent. No FBI agent says I'm humbled and I'm glad to be on the show in the same <laughs> breath. <laughs> but what he is, if there was a guy who is the epitome of what a federal agent ought to be, uh, besides you, you know, you, you always work good. Cause, but, you know, but you came from state and local roots. But Jerry yes. understood the importance of working with your partners. And, you know, the biggest thing is he loved his – that's the biggest takeaway for me. He loved his town more than anything else. He loved being there. He wanted to get back there. And he – he wanted to solve this case because this was his town, and yeah. he owned this case, and he he took it. And he even told us, you know, back when J. Edgar Hoover was uh, head of the FBI, it was a rule that you would never return to where you grew up because it, it, he – and it's, you know, that's kind of like it is with DEA. It, it, there's, there is a potential for corruption, 
But like Jerry says, he you go into a bigger city. It's not like going to Princeton, West Virginia, where I went to high school, you know, population 9,000. You're going into a city that's a couple hundred thousand. You know the layout. You know the criminals already. You know who you can trust, who you can't trust. You know the lay of the land. You know everything about that general area, which gives you, it really does give you a leg up. People you went to high school with are now in professional positions, or maybe they've become the, the local criminals. But you have that leg up, and Jerry proved that, you know, that theory of never go back to where you came from, that's not necessarily true. Well, that was my argument when I was on the state patrol. I was in Salina, Kansas. I said, just let me stay here because they had a habit of moving you because they said, now you're familiar with that area. I said, look, I'm a cop in Salina. I'm already arresting everybody I know. Nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but yeah, so. but they still moved you, moved me 200 miles away. And the rest, as they say, is history. But anyway, we hope you guys enjoyed that. And let me tell you, go to pizzabomber.com. Go to our website. You got to read his four books, which we put there on the lamb, a history of hunting fugitives in America. Uh, uh, then there's other one called mania and Marjorie deal Armstrong inside the mind of a female serial killer. As you found out in the episode, this wasn't her first homicide. She's got a few tucked into her belt. Pizza bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery and a history of heist bank robbery in America, man. These are all on our book page. They're all at pizzabomber.com. Jerry Clark, what an awesome dude. And we seriously, Fantastic. we were humbled and honored that you would come on and share your story with us in such a fun and, and engaging way. You, no, nothing uptight about this dude. He was just open, honest, transparent, and, and, a, and a barrel of fun. He really was. And, and thank you, Jerry, to you and Jason Wick, both of, of you, for hanging in there, for persevering through this entire investigation. As convoluted as it was, uh, all the obstacles you ran up against from you know, your main suspect going into mental institution for a couple of years where you couldn't get access to her, to the courts, not wanting to prosecute because they didn't feel like they had a, a case, to the feds versus the state and locals in, in court, not police officers, but in the court system. So hats off to you guys. You did a fantastic job. Thank you for your friendship. We hope we can stay in touch, man. I, I'm hoping to meet you in person here in the not too distant future. Yeah, just come out to Erie. He, he'll, he's the he's the head of the Chamber of Commerce, apparently, because he talks so well about Erie. He's the town. He, he's, he should run for mayor. He should be the mayor of Erie. There you go. And, and one one more shout out to my friend, Kevin, Dar- uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Barwin. I started calling you Darwin. Can't even Sorry, remember. brother. I have a friend. What is his name again? <laughs> I have one friend and you, you had one job, Murph, and you screwed it up. Uh, no, to Kevin, thanks. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. Uh, like I said, I'd never heard of this case, but it's one of the most interesting criminal investigations I've ever read about. So thank you, my friend. Thank you, guys. Hey, and everybody, thank you once again, guys. We appreciate it so much. Tell your friends, tell one, share one. And once again, players, playerettes, dudes and dudettes, and everybody in between, thank you for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, and still to today, most interesting podcast of all, The Game of Crimes. 